Welcome to the Living Room Disciple Podcast. My name's Anissa, and as you've probably already noticed, I'm not Nick or Phil. Normally, I'm the one behind the mic, producing all the episodes you hear. During the month of January, we're taking the month off in order to enjoy some rest and time off. So during this month, we're resharing some of our favorite episodes from last year. The episode you're about to hear was recorded with a doctoral candidate, Becky Castle Miller, on the intersection of emotion and discipleship. It's one of my absolute favorite episodes. Not only does Becky reframe how we think about emotions, but she explores the impact of Jesus experiencing and discipling real human feelings. It's my prayer that as you listen to this episode again, or for the first time, that God would use this to shape both you and the community you're in to be more like Jesus. So without further ado, welcome to the Living Room Disciple Podcast, where discipleship finds a home. Okay, we are so incredibly excited to have you, Becky Castle Miller, here on the podcast uh, with Nick and myself. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It was a rough first year of PhD coursework, just in the sense that it was the hardest academic thing I've ever done, which I guess it should be. Um, but I've just been kind of reeling the past couple of weeks of coming back to reality, catching up on laundry. Oh, and housework man. and just doing things other than school. So I'm I'm starting to feel good and like I'm ready to start some summer research. I just want to noted that I've never said the words ready to start summer research before in my <laughs> life. But I appreciate I appreciate that you could say that. Well, tell us a little bit about uh your 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 program that you're in. Right. So I am in the PhD program at Wheaton College. They take six students a year, and it's a multidisciplinary wow. program. They mm. take two in theology, two in New Testament, and two in Old Testament. And we work together in a cohort, so we're always learning from each other as we go through our program, oh, which so is really cool. exciting. And Wheaton really emphasizes theological and biblical engagement. Like, I didn't learn this until seminary, but theology and biblical studies are two different disciplines. It does not sound like two different disciplines. But they are, <laughs> okay, it turns okay. out. And so to integrate theology and biblical studies is a key aspect of Wheaton's program. Okay. And they also emphasize, uh, it's, it's kind of a hybrid US-UK model. So in the UK, you do just dissertation and you get done in about three years. In the US, a PhD can take you six years, nine years. Like it can take a really long time. You do yeah. two years of coursework before you really start your dissertation. So Wheaton tries to accelerate that and get us done in about four years. So we do have coursework, but they accelerate the schedule. So I've actually already defended my research proposal, which a lot of people don't do till after their second year. Yeah. And that means I've given the committee my outline of my dissertation and what I want to research. They've already approved it. So I actually can start writing my dissertation this summer. So give us your lay-level summary. What are, what are you studying? Right. Okay. So I am Esau McCauley's first PhD student. My colleague Chris and I are together with, in New Testament with Dr. McCauley this year. And I am specifically looking at... Um, emotions in the Gospel of Luke, specifically how Jesus shapes and orients the emotions of his disciples. Wow. That is powerful and fits beautifully with what we want to talk to you about today. Um, yeah. we've, we've told you a little bit about the idea behind this podcast of just the way that all the things surrounding us are shaping us and making us either more or less like Jesus. 
And we also realize that things within us, our emotions are shaping us and making us more or less like Jesus. We're all Mm -hmm. feeling countless emotions every single day. Um, But Phil and I have had many conversations where we realize that we are just in over our heads trying to understand emotion or talk about emotion in a way that that makes sense or is um, grounded in any type of actual knowledge. Um, So we're just so grateful to have the opportunity to learn from your wisdom today and and to learn from somebody who knows what they're talking about. Um, So tell us a little bit about emotions in the book of Luke. Tell us about Jesus's emotions. Tell us about the way Mm -hmm. that he uses emotion in the way he disciples his followers. Absolutely. Well, maybe it's helpful to start with the definition of emotion that I'm using. Hmm. Okay. Um, There are many different theories of emotion, many different definitions of emotion. And that has actually been a challenge when it comes to biblical studies, because it's not a big field. Not a lot of people have done work on emotion in scripture. It's a growing field. But a lot of the work that's been done hasn't given a clear definition of emotion or said specifically, here's the theory of emotion that I'm working with, right? They try to do it Mm -hmm. with this assumption. Well, we all know what emotions are, right? Okay, let's move Mm. on and look at the text. Mm. So what I'm trying to do a little bit differently is to say, I'm going to use a specific theory of emotion, which is the theory of constructed emotion from Lisa Feldman Barrett. And I'm going to see what that specific definition gives us as a lens when we look at the biblical text and see if being specific can actually help us understand better. So I'm working with Dr. Barrett's ideas and also another researcher named Bacha Mesquita, who is a Dutch social psychologist. And so Dr. Barrett's work is outlined in her book, How Emotions Are Made. Uh, And she has she's published like 260 peer-reviewed articles. Like she's one of the most cited scientists. If you find a handbook on emotion, she probably edited it. Um, So she's a a well-known researcher in the field. Um, And her theory is that emotion is the meaning that our minds make from our body's sensations. And that emotion takes into account our brain's ability to predict what's going to happen next. So emotion prepares us to take action based on prediction. Emotion uses our interoception, which is our brain's ability to acknowledge and understand what's going on inside our own bodies. So if you notice that you've just had a lot of New York pizza and your stomach is feeling really heavy, that is your interoception sense. I don't don't want to talk about it, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you might feel that and you might construct an emotion of regret. (laughs) Or you might construct an emotion of joy okay, or et cetera, right? So your interoception, what your body is feeling, you're predicting what's going to happen next. And then you're drawing on all your life experience and your culture and your language and all the emotions that your parents and teachers taught you growing up Mm -hmm. so that you know when someone cuts you off in traffic and you feel intense something, you know Mm -hmm. that that emotion is called road rage in North America. Hmm. You're constructing road rage because someone taught you the emotion of road rage. Interesting. So, so let me repeat this back to you kind of as I'm like beginning to understand it. And let me like use an an example, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm about to celebrate 11 years of marriage. I had to put a plug out. Uh, And so (laughs) let's imagine me and my wife have ever had a fight. Not that we ever have, but let's just hypothetically, right? Um, We're standing in the kitchen. We are, you, you know, conversations getting intense. And, you know, maybe 
she uses or I use one of those trigger phrases, phrases that like have been hurtful or painful in the past. So what you're saying is, is that I'm drawing on my past ex- like so subconsciously i think mm-hmm. yeah i'm drawing Be- on my past before experience. your prefrontal cortex engages you're already constructing an emotion in other parts of your brain so yeah it, it okay. feels like it is um out of your control because it happens so fast but but yeah. i'll explain later how it is in your control but yes continue okay and that's really what we want to get to at one yeah. point but but i want to set a good framework for like our conversation and so in that moment i'm drawing upon all this past experience like it would in what feels instantaneous mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that my brain is preparing me for its assumption of what's coming. Yes. It's making a prediction of what's to come. Mm-hmm. You know, this pain will follow this statement mm-hmm. and therefore I'm going to rise into some habitual pattern. Maybe I'm defensive. Maybe I become reclusive. Uh, whatever it is based on how I've reacted in the past. Am I tracking correctly? Yes, absolutely correct. Yes. And so your okay. brain is drawing on your concept system to construct an instance of emotion. So just okay. as you have a concept of a pine tree mm-hmm. or um, or an oak tree, like those are concepts. You can see multiple instances. You could see a small pine tree or a big pine tree and and it could be brown or it could be green and you're yeah, going to yeah. say pine tree. Like you've got a concept and it, it, it is composed of multiple instances in your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it fits in the concept bucket. So in mm-hmm. the same way, you have a concept of anger, road rage, joy, regret, um, disappointment. And so when you experience an instance of it and you begin to construct that, you're drawing on your life's experience of that concept. I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Okay. So it it almost feels like um, this is something I've been thinking about. Me and Nick have even talked about, um, uh, not on the pod, but but differently in, in the past. This, it's kind of like your imagination, um, to some extent, fills in the blanks, mm-hmm. uh, the assumptions that that are created based upon your past life experiences, right? Absolutely. So you say you say pine tree. I my imagination fills in what that word means, an image that goes Absolutely. along with with the word. Yeah. Um, Correct. So I'm going to, and I know we're going to get to this, but this is kind of like, I think the reaction that a lot of, I think listeners would have, I'm having is, yeah, I don't control those emotions. Mm -hmm. Like that's a knee jerk reaction. That is a result of, you know, for me, decades of life and experience. And I, why is it even important to study this and to understand this in scripture? And then how do we apply that to our life? Absolutely. Okay. That's a great question. I want to make sure we answer it. Why is it important to study emotion as it relates to scripture? We're not ready to get there yet, but I want to make sure we we can answer that. (laughs) So this is where Dr. Mosquito's work comes in. Your culture has socialized you into the emotions that you tend to construct. Mm-hmm. different cultures have different emotions mm. and even different understandings of what emotions are. In mm. the U.S., we tend to think of emotions as inner states that belong to me and they're something that I feel inside of me. But mm-hmm. a lot of cultures actually see emotion as relational acts between people. Fascinating. Emotion is something that is shared um, and that makes a difference oh. in relationships. Um, Emotion is more corporate and less individual in some cultures. Um, And so 
if you move cross-culturally, as I did when I moved to the Netherlands for eight years, Dutch people don't have the same emotions that American people do. And when I tried to map my emotion concept onto their words and translate word for word, I'm still not getting all the nuances of their Mm. emotion. Um, Pride in the US, like you, it is good to have pride and to kind of elevate yourself and have good self esteem. Whereas in the Netherlands, it's a cultural value to not be the tallest blade of grass. You don't want to stand out or differentiate yourself from other people, you want to be normal. So Mm. like pride doesn't have a self-esteem component. And that's just one example. Um, Or there's there's also untranslatable words. The Dutch word gezellig, which means, uh, well, it's untranslatable. You have to to give you a whole paragraph to explain it, right? It means you're cozy, you're together with family or friends, everyone's having a good time, you're you're somewhere warm and safe, and you're having something nice to drink, and it's it's a shared emotion, right? We don't have we don't even have that emotion. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. Because <laughs> I had so many Dutch friends over time show me instances of that emotion, I was able to build a concept. And now yeah. I actually construct that emotion. And I will I can say to my kids, oh, this is so gazelica sitting around the fire together in winter. But I didn't know that emotion until mm-hmm. I lived there. So culture and social. You're blowing my mind right now, by both. the way. Yeah. Like I <laughs> I thought emotions, like I thought I thought I already knew them all. Like I thought it was exhaust. Like I, I thought I'd already I thought it was a finite list Mm -hmm. that I, Phil, had figured out already, you know? There's a wonderful book. I think it's called The Book of Human Emotion by historian Tiffany Watt-Smith. And it's A to Z. It's just short essays about emotions from all around the world. It's a delightful read. And you'll learn all kinds of new emotions that you didn't know. And she does have a chapter on Gezelheit. That Dutch word I explained. So – and you're not alone in feeling like this is a paradigm shift. Mm. A lot of the research that was done in the 60s, 70s, even to the 90s, was done by an emotion researcher named Paul Ekman. If you ever saw the show Lie to Me, that was like a crime-solving show where the consultant could kind of read people's facial expressions and tell what they were feeling and tell if they were telling the truth. Ekman consulted on that. But Barrett then in like the 2000s, tried to repeat his experiments and couldn't. And she's actually debunked a lot of his work. His Mm. idea was that emotions are universal. They are innate. They are inborn. Every human everywhere feels the same basic six emotions. And there are recognizable biological fingerprints like facial expressions that can tell you what someone else is feeling or what you're feeling. Barrett like did a ton of experiments around the world and was like, yeah, we can't you can't prove it. There's no biological fingerprint for any emotion. It is a whole brain process. So her work is That's deeply formed by the culture new. that somebody mm-hmm. grows up in, exactly. that they're a part of, and that shapes, if you were to use the word fingerprint, that, that shapes the print, right? It's not right. Bio- like it's not inborn. It's 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 created by it's created. a lot of factors. Yeah. So what is inborn is that God created us with the ability to construct emotions. Every mm-hmm. human has that. Uh. Okay. What is different is is what emotions you learn to construct over time as you grow up. So it is a paradigm shift. This is a relatively new breakthrough in neuroscience and social psychology. Probably since 2016, this idea has really been spreading. And so it's a theory. It seems to be the best theory. But as my PhD committee keeps asking me, 
what are you going to do with your dissertation if someone else comes along with a different theory? And I'm like, well, you know, when I was writing my master's thesis on emotions and discipleship, I was actually, I started using Ekman's work. Um, And then I found Barrett's work halfway through and I had to scrap what I had written and rewrite it. And so I've just told them like, yeah, that's the challenge of using social science research and biblical studies. I've done it before. I'm confident I can do it again. Um, But hopefully I'll get my dissertation published before new emotion theory comes along. (laughs) Or I'm just going to pray that for holds you. up for a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have been, I, I used to hope that, that my dissertation would hold up for a hundred years. But what my advisor has convinced me of is that any academic writing is for a moment in time hmm. and you, hmm. you really just have to be okay with it. You're contributing to the conversation in your moment and then scholarship can and should move on. What you want to do is you want to be one of the people that everyone else has to cite. In 10 years, if someone writes a dissertation on emotions, I want them to have to, you know, their PhD committee should say, hey, you didn't quote Becky Castle Miller in here. You have to (laughs) grapple with her work. Even if you disagree with her, like you have to grapple with it. Like that, that's the hope that I have for my research that someone else will argue against me in in 10 years. So speaking about things holding up over time and emotions across cultures, do we know anything about the way that an ancient Israelite or a first century Greco-Roman person would have experienced emotion that's different than the way we experience emotions? Yeah, that is a that is a great question. That is one of my key research questions. Ask me again in two years. Um, <laughs> what I can Let's say from the show preliminary, now. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> in preliminary findings. Um, This gets to the earlier question that I wanted to make sure we came back to is why does it matter to consider emotion in scripture? And I, I think it's because if we map our emotion concepts onto the emotion words in scripture, we will misunderstand the text. And that leads us to misinterpret the Bible. And I, I care about correct interpretation of scripture. So I've done a lot of work this semester on one emotion word, which is merimnao or merimna. Um, depending if you're using the verb or the noun. And it is the word that Paul uses in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Mm -hmm. It's the word Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. It's the word Jesus uses in Matthew 6, in Luke 12, don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, because your father is going to, he's aware of all your needs, he's going to take care of you. It's the same word Jesus uses when he talks to Martha in Luke 10. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted mm-hmm. by many things. So this word is translated anxiety or worry or concern. But my preliminary research is saying, hey, anxiety is not a good translation for that in English. Because mm-hmm. when we say anxiety in, in the U.S., people tend to think anxiety disorder because it has taken on a medicalized meaning. Because words change meaning over time. Um, And Paul had no concept of anxiety disorders. And that's not what he's talking about. And so I've seen pastors use Philippians 4, 6 to condemn people with anxiety disorders and tell them they're sinning. But I think that's a misapplication of the text. Whereas if we look at possible translations of the word and understand that it is a different emotion than our word worried or our word concerned or our word anxious. What does it mean to Paul? Well, maybe it means like, don't be unduly concerned. Don't be divided in mind. When Jesus says it, it's like, don't prioritize the things of the world, but prioritize the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That's very different than condemning someone with an anxiety disorder, right? So that is a very long explanation of why I think it's important that we care about yeah. emotion in scripture 
Because I think we have a tendency to misread the text by assuming it means the same thing as our emotion words with a word for word translation. So when we look at, at and, I, and I think the, you know, Jesus saying, you know, um, you know, look at the birds of the air, mm-hmm. you know, look at, look at them, like, don't worry uh, over, I'm, I'm, this is the biggest butchery of this text anyway. Okay. Anyway, when Jesus <laughs> is like, essentially, don't worry, mm-hmm. I take care of the birds, I take care of the flowers, like, I'm going to take care of you too. What you're saying is, is to understand Jesus's words or Paul's words or Peter's words, or, you know, to understand the teachers and, and, and the authors of the New Testament texts, if we misunderstand those key words, and I take this word worry, and then what I do is I dump my 30 plus years of anxiety, of laying awake in, at night, of, you know, having increased, like, you know, heart palpitations, like all those experiences, I take them and I dump them onto this word, then you're saying like, I can get a wrong understanding of scripture. Exactly. That's, that's my contention. I, that's what I, that's what I'm arguing for Mm -hmm. in my dissertation, that we need a better understanding of these words. Um, and so to Nick's question, what was an ancient Jewish understanding of emotion? What was an ancient Greco Roman understanding? So I'm actually going to do a guided research in the fall where I'm going to read some of the Greco Roman philosophers and read their views on the passions Mm -hmm. and the virtues. They didn't use the word Mm -hmm. emotion. Um, And, and see what their ideas were. So I've read quotes of Aristotle and other people's work, but I'm going to actually go read Aristotle and see what I can get. I've read quotes from Socrates, but I'm going to go really look at what did he think about the passions and the virtues. But what I've gathered so far is that uh, there's been kind of this assumption that if we look at ancient Greco-Roman emotion, we will understand ancient Jewish emotion in scripture. So a lot of the work on New Testament emotion draws from Greek philosophers. But if we understand that different yeah. cultures have different emotions, even contemporary cultures, we're going to say, wait, I Greco-Roman understanding of emotion, or Greek understanding of emotion, Roman understanding of emotion, and Jewish understanding of emotion are going to be different. They may use yeah. the same word. They may say orge and you know, anger, but it means something different to a Greek than it does to a Jew. That was going to be my next question because those New Testament texts are written in Greek by Hebraic thinkers and by, you know, people who have a Jewish understanding of these emotions. So they're using Greek words, but with Jewish understandings. Right. And so I think we have to draw on Old Testament texts, the Septuagint largely. So if you take the Old Testament in Greek, in the Septuagint, Mm -hmm. This is this is one of my projects. Like there, I'm going to have a chapter on this. Um, I think if we look at, um, so like Psalm uh, 55:22 is uh, is what Peter quotes in First Peter 5 7, mm-hmm. and it, it mm. uses the same emotion word there in the Septuagint. So what if I look at the context of that psalm, and I assume that that's the context that Peter is drawing on? That's going to give me an understanding of what Peter means that's different than if I assume he's drawing on prevailing Greek ideas of this word. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also looking at other Second Temple texts, like some of the scrolls that were found at Qumran, mm-hmm. to see what literature and examples were informing the writers of the New Testament. Where do these emotion concepts show up in their Jewish history, and how was that informing 
the emotions that Jesus is then teaching his followers. So there's that's kind of like my roadmap, and I haven't done a lot of the work yet, but that's where I think yeah. it's going. What I think I'm finding is Jewish emotion is different, and if we look at context from Old Testament and Second Temple literature, we're going to have a better idea of what Jesus means than if we just look at Greek philosophers. Mm-hmm. That's powerful, and I can't wait to hear more about that in a couple of years. Um, so let's dive into Jesus and his experience with emotions. We we talk about uh, Jesus wept being the shortest verse in the Bible, but there's also times where where Jesus looks at Israel and sees them as sheep without a shepherd and has compassion on them and feeds them or heals them or or does mm-hmm. something like that. There's there's anger as he turns the tables in the temple. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus experiences emotion just like we do. Um, yeah. What have you found in in looking deeper into yeah. Jesus's emotions in Luke? Mm-hmm. So in Luke, I charted 158 instances of emotion, whether from Jesus or his followers or the crowds around them or the angels, et cetera. You know, angels saying, do not fear. Mm -hmm. I count that as an instance of emotion. Um, So there's a lot of emotion in the Gospel of Luke when you start looking for it. It's on every page. Um, Jesus shows emotion fairly openly. And one thing I want to look at is how does that compare with cultural norms for men of his time? Like, was he following cultural norms or was he breaking them? I don't know the answer to that yet. But he does show emotion openly to his friends. Um, He has some emotions that seem to be in keeping with um, his history and his scripture. So he talks Mm. about zeal for my father's house in the Mm. temple cleansing. That's a very Old Testament emotion that he's drawing on because he was soaked in those scriptures growing up. He knows zeal for my father's house. It's a a cultural emotion concept he's uh, inherited. Mm. And so he then constructs it as a matter of course, which is beautiful. And then he has compassion, which seems to be a reflection of God's compassionate love in uh, in the, the Hebrew scriptures, um, he also seems to have, so there's kind of those like religious emotions that I think he gathered from his faith community growing up. There are emotions that are particularly spiritual, like in Luke 10, when he's full of joy by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I'm not sure what that means yet, but it's a really interesting and <laughs> unique occurrence of emotion. And then there seem to be emotions that are very human. That all of his emotions are human, right? Because he's he's yes. fully human. And I believe Jesus learned emotions as every other human from the socializing figures in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to say that his emotion like there's a big question in Christology. I'm gonna I'm gonna footnote this. We don't I go think off. I know where attention. you're going. <laughs> God's emotions are a big issue in theology. Yes. (laughs) Is God passable? Does God change? Can God experience emotions? I have some opinions on that that are not quite well educated enough to share them. Um, And I have different professors who believe different things. So I've I've gotten a lot of interesting input. But to say- What is clear is that the authors of the Old Testament use the Hebraic words for emotion. Yes. To describe describe instances of interaction with Yahweh. Yes. God is emotional according to the writers of the Old Testament. Um, 
But the question of whether Jesus is displaying divine emotion mm. or human emotion is way too complicated. Someone else can do a dissertation wow. on that. I'm not touching it. <laughs> so what I'm going to talk about now are Jesus' human emotions. Yeah. Um, and so even these religious emotions, he is he is constructing them as a Jewish man who grew up as a Jewish boy. I, I'm sorry. I, I, gotta, I, I will say that as... as I feel like a, I'm feel like a perpet, like one of those annoying students who just is going to interrupt you in class and say, Bye. go back 15 seconds, but here we are. Um, I will <laughs> say, you know, we just had Dr. Um, uh, Randy Richards on, uh, he wrote misreading scripture with Western eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing that I, that I thought of when you said, you know, is Christ is Jesus like displaying like these, uh, emotions that are m- more parallel to the God of you know, Yahweh and, and, or human or divine, human or divine. I think, I, mm. I think that idea of one or the other isn't inherently like a Western way of thinking about that question. Mm. Mm. And I think there's just an interesting kernel of thought there that, I mean, the Hebraic way of approaching that would be like, yes to both. Right. Yeah. Like the answer is yes. They were divine. Yes. They were. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. But for for modern academia's purposes, um, mm. it's it's a sticky can of worms I don't want to open. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Um, so if but if we're looking at Jesus' human emotions because he is fully human, um, mm. and I will say that in his ascension, we just had ascension ascension day uh, last Thursday. In his ascension, he is still fully human. And so Jesus is still constructing fully human emotion today mm. as wow. he advocates for us what? and intercedes for That's us. Wild. He is still constructing and experiencing human emotion in his human body. He truly mm. knows how we feel. Isn't that amazing? That yeah. is amazing. Yeah. A high priest who can sympathize, right? Yeah. Because he still has human emotion. Amazing. Yeah. Um, That's beautiful. So when he's like in the Garden huh. of Gethsemane, and he's anguished, which is is not really our English word of of anguish or agony. Like agonia in in Greek is is again a different emotion, but yeah. we can kind of approximate it. But he's he's deeply grieved. He you know there's all these emotions that Jesus constructs, and then he expresses them openly in front of his disciples, as if he's acting kind of as a parent or a socializing figure mm-hmm. who is modeling healthy emotion for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that his disciples are learning what emotions are appropriate for the culture of the kingdom of God as he I- inaugurates them into that kingdom in his discipleship process. They learn by watching him And they learn from his direct instruction because he does in some places teach them about emotion, but in other places he just expresses Mm. it. And I think they pick up by observation. Mm. Wow. Interesting. So he is in a sense, discipling their emotions. Would you say that's a fair, a fair Mm -hmm. thing to say? That's that's going to be my key point. Yeah. That he is, uh, that, that emotion needs to be discipled as does every other aspect of our human lives. And we leave it out of the discipleship conversation too often. Yeah. Okay. So this is really where we wanted to get. I think I can speak for Phil and myself that um, how does he disciple the disciples' emotions and how is that instructive for us in Mm -hmm. learning to, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's disciple our own emotions or allow Jesus and the Spirit to disciple us um, and our emotions to be more Christ-like? Mm-hmm. 
our emotions motivate us to take action toward our values and goals. Right. So as Jesus changes the focus and values for his disciples, they are naturally going to start constructing some different emotions. And he does help them reorient those emotions um, by changing the object of them or the focus of them. So when he says, don't worry about what you're going to wear because he doesn't just leave them with a command and don't tell them how to manage it. Because like you mentioned earlier, Phil, emotion feels out of our control because it happens so fast. Mm -hmm. And when you're constructing an emotion in the moment, it is very hard to change it. But Mm. as with every discipleship process that is done over a long period of time, we can change the emotions that we are prone to construct over time as we reorient our focus, our values, our concentration. We can learn new emotion concepts and express them and construct them. Um, We can focus on particular things, which impacts our prediction function of our brain. And so we'll begin to predict and then construct healthier emotions. Um, and, And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He gives them a reason and an object. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear because you can see God's faithfulness to God's people in the past. And therefore, you can construct hope and faith and trust that God will provide for you. You can be Mm -hmm. reassured that God knows your needs. You can be reassured that God will provide for you. Here's how you ask in prayer. And so he teaches them, don't fear, but trust, but here's why and here's how. So he, he reorients their emotions and helps them turn toward really healthier coping mechanisms. So, okay. So I, I think I'm, I'm putting together kind of a picture here. And honestly, that's the point. It almost feels like Jesus is saying is like, and I think what you're saying is our emotions are to some extent a byproduct of what we are expecting, what we are predicting for mm-hmm. our future. Um, and Jesus is trying to orient our vision of the future, of what is to come, uh, and have our essentially our predictions of the future be constructed based on his consistency in the in the scriptural past, and saying like, if this is what I have done before, like this is what I'm going to do, you know, give gives us all this image and understanding of like what the kingdom of heaven is like. Tries to paint this clear picture of of this kingdom this future in our mind and i think what you're saying is is if we can if we can hold that in our mind then our emotions will follow that vision yes yeah i think that's what jesus is doing and if you think about parenting your children you are their emotion tour guide as lisa feldman barrett calls it I like that. You are teaching them the emotions to construct that will make them good members of your culture. Yeah. As an American parent, I teach my kids to um, want to achieve and to be happy and to to have Mm -hmm. an excited level of happiness and to be proud and to kind of self-promote. And I give them all these emotions that would be just absolutely 
so gauche in Japan, for example. Like okay. those are not those are not the emotions that a Japanese mother is going to inculcate in her child. Those aren't even yeah. the emotions a Dutch mother is going to inculcate in her child. She's going to be like, you know, be normal, stay calm, um, don't be self-promoting. So you are your child's tour guide and you're introducing them to your culture to make them fit well in your culture. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, okay, I'm going to help you fit into the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Wow. And here are some of the emotions like compassion, zeal, uh, joy in the spirit, mm. et cetera. A, a lack of worry. A lack of worry. Perhaps defined differently than we understand that. A focus on the priorities of the kingdom instead of a focus on the priorities of our temporal life. Fascinating. So speaking of children, one question I really wanted to ask you is the, so I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I find in myself that there are very few things that can make me angrier than the three-year-old not letting me change his diaper or brush his teeth or him not staying in his bed or, or things like that. And I get angrier than the moment deserves. I get, mm. I get irrationally angry. And afterwards, I just walk away feeling like, I, my emotion was not like Jesus in that moment. I didn't treat him like Jesus because of my emotion. Um, so how, what would you say mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. those emotions, even, even like what we might call positive emotions, but that are aimed in a poor direction, like feeling happy at somebody else's expense when something bad happens to them because we don't like them. Schadenfreude. Or, um, <laughs> yeah. There's a name for that. Yeah, it's That's a German. Awesome. It's a German word, Schadenfreude. Okay, it's like rejoicing at someone else's downfall, especially if they're your enemy. Wow, oh. fascinating! Wow. So, so there are emotions that seem to be able to pull us away from the values of the kingdom, the emotions mm -hmm. of the kingdom. What would mm -hmm. you say to somebody trying to disciple their emotions towards Jesus when when the toddler won't won't lay still, mm -hmm. or, or when mm -hmm. the enemy falls and we feel like rejoicing? Yeah. That's such an important question, and I just love that you're asking that. And I think the first step is asking that. It's like just paying attention to our emotions. That's the mm -hmm. first step, noticing mm -hmm. them in our bodies, giving them names, getting comfortable talking about our emotions and working through them. Huge step. If you can do that, you're way ahead of most of the population, especially as a man. Um, men are not given, I think, as much emotion regulation coaching as a lot of women are. and so. Um, mm -hmm. I think men sometimes come to the conversation with an unfortunate disadvantage. Men are not less emotional than women or less capable of emotional maturity than women. They're just less cultured in it in some cases. So right. I, asking the question is great. Um, I don't like to say positive and negative emotions because I actually don't think there are any bad emotions. There are comfortable and uncomfortable emotions. And sometimes the object of our emotion may not be in fitting with our Christ-like character, right? Like rejoicing is great. Rejoicing at your enemy's downfall right. is not super healthy. Anger is good and important. Hating your brother is not good. Um, Jesus mm. says not to do that. Yeah. Love is good. Loving sin is not good, right? So it's the mm. object of the emotion, I think, more than the emotion itself. Mm. And I would not say that emotions are irrational. You, you talked about irrational anger a moment ago. But emotion and rationality are not opposites. They are all part of our thought process, and we actually need emotion to make good decisions. To think that we can be purely rational without emotion is actually not how our brains work, and it's, it's, it's a ridiculous goal. Like It's not even a thing you can do. Thinking and feeling are, are intertwined in our brains and bodies. It's a false dichotomy. So your anger 
when your toddler won't lay still is not irrational. It's completely sensical. It makes sense. You are frustrated in your goal, which is to care for your child by changing their diaper, and you are blocked from accomplishing your goal because they won't stay still, and your natural emotional response is anger or frustration. That is exactly how God designed your body to work. Hmm. So you're you're working exactly as you should. Now, what you want to do is learn to manage that so that you're not harming your child by yelling at them or whatever, um, in the process of, of your very normal and healthy anger or frustration. If you're feeling like you said your reaction was outsized more than what the situation called for, then that is an indicator that you might have an area of growth there or even a wound that needs to be healed inside of yourself. Is there something that happened in your past that this is reminding you of that's pointing you to an unhealed wound. Like your your emotion in the moment makes sense for the situation, but perhaps the intensity of it is coming from something from your past that's leaking into your present. And that is something that you can heal. Uh, and then the intensity would be more what you feel is fitting for the situation in the present. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I kind of, I guess I want to push back just a little bit, not like in like absolute disagreement, but like, but I, I think this is raising some questions that, I, that mm-hmm. I'm having. And um, so one of the things that you were saying is, is that, you know, no emotion is bad. And I think I'm tracking with that general idea. Um, but I, I, I do wonder if some emotions and context of emotions um, don't belong in the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, there is the indication, mm-hmm. at, at least under like the discipleship barometer, that they're bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. kind of like there. Can you give so an example? I, uh, yeah, worry would be one, right? I mean, so just, mm-hmm. and that's on the top of my mind because we're using it as an example. But for me, I can't think of anywhere in scripture that would make me think that worry would ever be appropriate. Now, I want it really clear that I'm, I'm not condemning. I myself struggle often with the feelings of anxiety and worry. And, um, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if you, if you see it different, I think the Lord's desire for me in my discipleship process here on this earth is to grow in my dependence and belief in his faithfulness, mm-hmm. to eliminate that. And then, and then I don't believe, and I have no idea what this is really going to be like, so I'm well outside of understanding here, but you know, in whatever the new kingdom and new earth is going to be like here, I don't imagine worries being a part of that experience, though I imagine other mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a feelings. So walk me through, I mean, are, are there really no emotions? Like, can I really just not smack Nick and just be like, don't be angry about your, like, it's fine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say like smacking <laughs> violence that we don't want to have in the kingdom. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe not that. Maybe not. Um, he just made me really frustrated. Right. <laughs> so this is still a theory I'm playing around with. And I did sure. make my theological anthropology professor very uncomfortable in the fall when I said, I don't think there's any bad emotions. And he was like, Yeah, I'm getting uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, right? I don't know. Yeah. Um, So I think that God gave us our emotion system for many reasons. Mm. I think just to have an abundant, effective life. Like emotion in the scripture Mm. is emotion. Joy in the Bible means actual emotional joy. Happiness, you know, blessed are you, happy are you. That is actual happiness. I really believe that. So I think that emotion lets us feel 
complicated things. Like sadness doesn't feel good, but it tells us that something was valuable to us. And the ability to cry and grieve is actually important for whatever reason. It's the way God made us to grieve and process loss. We have to feel it. So worry and fear and terror, even anger, some of those are emotions that are designed to protect us. Like one of the reasons I think God gave us emotions was to protect us. Our intuition, our emotion system, these are tools to keep us safe in the world. And so if I'm worried, there's a reason for it. And so my worry is not bad. It's telling me something. If I am worried that my daughter is throwing up and she says her throat hurts, and what if she has strep throat? And what is that going to mean about, am I going to have to take some time off work? What does that going to mean for my deadlines? Like that worry is telling me something. I care about my child. I want to meet her needs. I'm also worried about getting my own work done. The worry is not bad. But I mm. think what Jesus and Paul and Peter are offering when they talk about worry is, here's how to handle it when your normal human worry comes up. You are not a bad person for worrying. But what you can do is get to the root of your worry, and instead of ruminating on it and being lost in it and being overwhelmed with it, what if you remembered God's faithfulness? What if you asked God for help and humbled yourself by reaching out instead of being self-sufficient? What if you asked the community of God's people to help you? Mm-hmm. Um, and what if you settled your mind in peace that God can bring you in the midst of your worry? So it's not like, don't worry, you're bad for worrying. Just shut down the worry. Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Yeah. It's like, hey, your worry is telling you something. The world is hard. And sometimes you don't have enough food on your table. And when you're in those situations, here's how to emotionally mature and spiritually mature and mm. and reorient that in faith like here are some coping skills it's like it's like giving co-regulation it's i'm with you and i'm going to help you feel better in the midst of this does that answer your question like the worry isn't bad or wrong but i think potentially getting stuck in it or ruminating in it is where we get off course and jesus is offering yeah. us better coping skills yeah, How does that land for you? It, well, I'm, I'm, so I think I'm tracking. I'm also experiencing, I think, probably what you've been dealing with for some time, which is the limitation of the words that we have to describe what we're describe, talking about. Um, because it, it, there's almost this thought that's ruminating in me that what you had said earlier, it's more like the, the um, object of that emotion. And that really resonated with me. And like I'm, I'm focusing quite a bit on that. And so there's, for example, this... And I'm using only Western English Americanized <laughs> words to, to describe this. So I know there's so much that's just being missed out on here. But it's like this idea of concern, I think is really biblical. I would say that Jesus's concern for me drove him to the cross, right? Like I think that there's concern that is a good and godly, and I don't feel like we're ever commanded. But concern for self, preservation, of, mm -hmm. you know, my temporal body and conditions 
leads to the um, manifestation of that emotion in a way that is representative of like a fallen humanity, which mm-hmm. looks like worry and anxiety. And so when I feel worry and anxiety, I should think to myself, like, where is my focus? Mm-hmm. And if my focus is on my temporal self, which is leading to this, you know, heart, heart palpitations, like, what am I going to do? Then, then I'm probably outside of like the will of God and, and or yes. out, outside of his design for my emotions mm-hmm. as his disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reminds me of another aspect of Philippians. Paul uses that same worry word in Philippians 2 when he's talking about Timothy. And it's a very positive use of the word. Timothy is concerned for you. Wait, is that the same word? It's the same word. Oh my gosh, um, this is confusing. In, in Philippians 2.20 <laughs> and Philippians 4.6, it's the same word. Um, no. Like Nijay Gupta and Michael Bird's commentary on Philippians is really good and they touch on this. Okay. So Paul is commending Timothy for his concern for the Philippians. And then later he's saying, but like, don't be anxious, but pray for stuff when you're worried mm. about your own thing. So it's, I think there is that self-focused versus other focused element that seems to be going yeah. on. I think you nailed that. Okay, Becky. So as we wrap up here, thank you so much for, for sharing mm-hmm. your wisdom with us. It has been a, a paradigm shift, as we said at the beginning, and it's been so so much to think about and chew on. And I suspect it's something that I will be thinking about and chewing on and re-listening to this episode a couple times. Um, so thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. Um, what would you What would you say to the listener that that is you know, dialed into the, to what you're talking about, wants to know more, what would you say to us um, as we continue to think about this and meditate on it? What's kind of a closing thought that you would leave us on? Your emotions matter. Your emotions are important. God gave you your emotions. Don't try to shut mm. them away. Don't shut them down. If your emotions are feeling too big or out of control or really uncomfortable, um, and uncomfortable might be too mild of a word for what some people are feeling if they're in deep despair. Um, mm. Jesus cares about your emotions and Jesus understands your emotions. Even if he maybe, this is a whole other question. Like, I know that Jesus, and I believe that Jesus has human emotions in his human body. Since he now is, is like, able to oversee the whole of the world? Like, does he mm. now experience all cultures' emotions? Now I'm like, I, I'm curious. I don't know. I don't know. But even if Jesus doesn't know like your exact emotion, he knows what it feels like to feel and he cares and he intercedes for you with the Father. And yeah. so going on a journey to grow in emotional health as you grow in spiritual health is absolutely worthwhile. It will improve your relationship with God. It'll improve your relationship with yourself and it'll improve your relationships with other people. So the the journey to become emotionally whole and emotionally healthy is is absolutely worthwhile. And to be spiritual or to be a faithful follower of Jesus does not mean to be unemotional. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Living Room Disciple. This is a passion project from a bunch of believers who are coming together to put together amazing conversations. And we are excited to share even more of this in February. So stay tuned. In the meantime, Check us out at thelivingroomdisciple.com for more information about how, what we're doing and how we're doing it and how you can support us on Patreon to financially help this continue on through 2024. But in the meantime, just thank you so much for listening and for being a part of our Living Room Disciple community where discipleship finds a home. <laughs>